So this is a case from uh, <coughs> the Denkoroku, case 29. The Denkoroku is a book uh, that was put together, the book of uh, stories about the lives of different teachers that was put together later on, uh, a couple of generations after Dogen, by uh, Keizan. Um, and uh, once in a while uh, we bring up a koan from that book. It's a book that we study later on in the practice, so we don't encounter it that often at the beginning. And this is case 29. Bodhidharma, the case. The Buddhist master, Prajnatara, asked Bodhidharma, what among all things is formless? Bodhidharma said, non-origination is formless. Prajnatara asked, what among all things is greatest? Bodhidharma said, the nature of reality is greatest. Keizan's verse. There is no more location, no bounds, no outside. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? So last Sunday we entered a full Ango period. There's a strong entry ceremony and strong Zazenkai. And I feel that we entered with a unified commitment to dive deeply into the practice and to dive into it with a specific focus, to expand the understanding of actionable humility, not just conceptual humility, but actionable. And to do it as a manifestation of the Dharma, not just something to achieve or to, to clarify for, to add to what we want to work on, but to really dive deeply into understanding what does it flow from? What is? What is true humility? What does it mean to be humble? We have to dive deeply because conventionally humility can be seen as a positive virtue to aim for or to cultivate. We may find ourselves praising a person who acts in humble ways. We may even develop some self-praising feelings about our own actions that appear to be humble. But in what we call the realm of the Dharma, what is called the realm of the Dharma, such thoughts reveal that there is still a hidden self that is attached to the actions and clings to some benefit or benefits or maybe an expected outcome. You can work on it for three months and be something, become something. Have another thing added to the description of me. So how, we, how do we do it? How do we work on it without... How do we work on it in a way that is different from the way we are used to working on things in everyday life. How do, we, how do we do it in a way that is not too tight, not too loose? Right, as we talked about last week. What do we do with the frustration that is bound to appear, always appears? It's a step-by-step -step practice. Not of becoming, but more of recognizing. And what is revealed has always been there. I was just uh, talking with somebody in Doksan about how uh, my daughter, when she watches, one of them, when she watches movies, 
if she doesn't get the plot, right away she gets very frustrated. And she gets frustrated not because she's curious about what's happening, it's, because, it's mostly because she feels as if she fails if she doesn't get it, as if this means something about her intelligence. And very quickly the frustration and anger come up. And uh, my other daughter is telling her, wait, give it time, see what happens. It's, you're going to understand. Maybe it's not the time to understand. Right? You know, we can only see what we can see from where we are standing. There's no way to see into what will happen later. There's no way to see what we will see when the eyes open up wider. It's just not, it doesn't work this way. Not because what we will see is not so now. So we have to learn how to trust that what we are what we will see is already here and we are already complete. It's not just for Ango, it's obviously all aspects of practice. So a week into Ango, how do we feel? How do we feel about the commitments we took on personally? And how do we feel about the practice? How determined are we? So humility, <coughs> if we see it as a way to benefit or a way to feel better about ourselves or a way to make others feel better about us, then there is a hidden clinging there. There is obviously some attachment there. Trace. Now, true humility is traceless, selfless, and cannot be considered a trait to aim for or a new image we need to conform to. Now, true humility flows out of being firmly rooted in, which, in that which is true. In that which is true in the most intimate and most genuine way. It's not a truth that can be manufactured by our actions. We don't create it. We align with it. So it cannot be manufactured by what we do, but our understanding of it can be revealed by the way we function. So we have to look at the way we move, the way we act. We have to look at whether or not there are hidden agendas in what we say and what we do. Is there a hidden idea of gain? Is there a hidden fear of loss in my words and my actions? So we are going to where true humility arises out of, the heart of it, which is what we talked about last week in the Taishan. It was focused on the Buddha's first verbal teaching with the statement, as I now see all sentient beings everywhere, they are endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. But because of deluded thoughts and attachments, they do not realize it. Because we are looking at it from a mind of gain and loss, we cannot see. Because we are looking at it from a perspective of wanting to look different, appear different, sound different in the eyes of others, or see how we look based on what other people think and say. There's still duality. 
Buddha means by that is that because we're unable to see the fundamental truth as our true nature, we cling to the falsehood of creating a self through the six senses. And what I'd like to do this morning is stay in the same vein and keep exploring the naked truth through the life of Bodhidharma and his teachings, clear teachings, which point directly to the Buddha's realization. And we are going to study the teachings of Bodhidharma together, so it be good to get on the same page about Bodhidharma's life, about what is known, about what is unknown, about what is not so clear. And this is a good place to point out that some scholarly, there are some scholarly disagreements about the details of Bodhidharma's life, and you may have read that, getting ready to the book study. So there are some disagreements even about the histor his historical existence. Some say he's a compilation of more than one per few people that somehow got clumped together into one person. And some say that he did exist and the stories are good representation of his life. And from what I understand, at least up to now, scholars are unable to prove or refute the stories. So what we're left with is what has been passed on from generation to generation. But either way, when it comes to practice and study, it really doesn't matter if something did or did not happen, as long as we understand the implications of the stories, as long as we know how to embody them. And again, and again and again, it's not about studying history as much as understanding how those stories can wake us up today. So Bodhidharma was the third son of the king of Koshi in southern India. And his original name was uh, Bodhitara. His father, the king, was a devoted Buddhist practitioner. And one time he made an offering. He gave a precious jewel to the Buddhist master, Prajnatara. And Prajnatara wanted to discern the understanding of the three sons. So he called them, held up the jewel, the one he received from the father, and asked, is there anything which can compare to this jewel? Is there anything comparable to this magnificent jewel? The first two princes, the first two sons said, this jewel is the finest of all, and all precious gems cannot surpass it. Only one of your spiritual greatness would be worthy to receive it. The third one, the third son, Bodhitara, said, This is just a mundane gem and cannot be counted within the highest rank because the highest of all jewels is the jewel of reality. This is only a mundane glittering and cannot be considered to be the highest because the luster of wisdom is supreme. This has a mundane clarity and cannot be considered to be the finest because the clarity of awareness is supreme. This jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows its gleaming. If you know, you know that this is a jewel and knowing it is a jewel, you know that it is precious. If you know that it is precious, then you know that its value is not true value itself. And if you know that this is a jewel, you should only know that the jewel is not a jewel itself. This jewel is not a jewel because it is only a jewel of knowing only the jewel of knowing that can discern it as even a mundane jewel. 
how would we know? How do how would we know to look at it? With what? Its value is not true value itself because it is only the jewel of knowing that has true value. The way that you teach is a treasury of knowing and thus you have been offered this mundane treasure. Just as this treasure has appeared due to your wisdom, so may the treasure of awareness appear in those who awaken to it. Obviously, Lots of deepening to do. Right? Because the first tendency is to go to what we think we are looking at. We stay there. How often do we, without some level of practice, some practice, how often do we actually look at how we are looking? Or ask, who is looking? The attention goes to what we're looking at. So when Prajnatala heard this eloquent understanding, he realized that this guy is a great Dharma vessel. And he knew that he will be a great teacher at some point. But he felt that this is not the time yet. The conditions have not ripened yet for this to happen. So he remained silent. He didn't say anything. He just left. And this is this is the first, at least this was the first encounter, so known encounter between Prajnatara and Bodhidharma, who later on became a successor. Her successor. So, um, I'm not sure when, but I think the last, sometime the last couple of years, two, three years, um, scholars have discovered that uh, there's a strong evidence to point that Pajnatala was a female, which was somewhat unusual at that time. So, I'm not sure whether or not it was purposefully covered up until they found out, but it's good to know. So in this exchange, in this exchange, the first two sons looked at the jewel and at the teacher from perspective of differentiating mind. And so expressed their understanding based on what they saw, based on what they thought they are looking at. Is this wrong? Was this not genuine? Now, seeing through the differentiating mind by itself is not wrong. It should not be rejected or denied. It's our capacity to discern, to make choices. In fact, it is an essential aspect of our survival as a species. How would we know where to go, where to sit down, what to eat, what not to eat? And provisionally or conventionally, this is true. You know, by itself, the mind that differentiates is, is not an issue or a concern or something to uh, eradicate or get beyond. It's just that we're when we're unable to, uh, to see the unity in each particular, we remain upside down, as in the words of the Buddha. And what is essential for everyday functioning becomes a source of suffering. becomes something we identify with. So we have to look at that rather than at the mechanism. The mechanism is fine, it's necessary. 
It's what we do with it that makes the difference. It's what we do with it that either causes suffering or brings up healing. How does it cause suffering? By assigning a meaning to what is seen, identifying with it, and using what happens to solidify a false sense of self. And to turn right side up is to recognize that everything that comes into form subsists for a little while and disintegrates. And all this happens on a unified canvas that has no beginning and no end. Both are true. The canvas is true and what appears on that canvas is also true. We're not running from one to find some kind of solace in another. As Bodhidharma said in his answer to Prajnatala's question, this jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming. What is not seen through the differentiating eye is the ground. The ground of what is seen. That which is supporting what is seen. That which allows things to come and go. Without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming, it's impossible to recognize. So in another way of saying it, without silence there will be no sound. And without the silence, you will not be able to hear my voice. Because sound arises out of no sound. Sound is how no sound manifests. So you can hear more because of what I'm not saying than because of what I'm saying. It's not play on words. It's just when we use words, we get trapped because words can... There's a point that words just stop. And we have to journey without words from that point on. Without signposts. Signposts goes, go only that far. And then... And then we have to truly venture into the unknown. There's no background, there's no foreground. So looking at the jewel Prajnatala is holding, Bodhidharma said, its value is not true value itself because it is only the jewel of knowing that has true value. Only the jewel of knowing. I think about how much stock we put into things that happen, things we look at. How much value we assign to what we think, to what we feel, to what we remember. And how often we get totally lost in intricate plots we create through thought. How long we hold on to them. I mean, it does feel, it does seem that we feel a certain way because of what happened in the past. Of course, it feels this way. But we can only experience the past or past events through thoughts and emotions that can only be empowered when we identify with them now. 
The only way to free ourselves from what was is to wake up now. Not to go to what was, to go to what is. Yeah, there is karma. And there is freedom of karma in the midst of karma. While experiencing emotions, thoughts, memories, we have to be free. Because if we're not, we're not free. It's temporal. It's temporary because for the time being, maybe I will strap it down or put it in the closet, close the door. It doesn't work. So to not identify with thoughts, emotions, memories, to not create and perpetuate stories, to keep returning to non-origination. As in the words of Bodhidharma. Because if we recognize that true value lies in that which silently silently provides a constant background. Background to the mess. It's true. It's messy. It's muddy. It's complicated. So if we recognize that, then thoughts and emotions are not identified with. And then with time, the need to identify actually subsides. We learn to trust and prefer what is. We learn to be comfortable without boundaries, without walls, ceiling, floor, without looking for stability. And it's a universal mechanism, this need that we have to, to create and sustain walls and ceilings. And it applies equally to what we desire and what we reject. Money, fame, assets, worldly power, enlightenment. It all falls, it can't fall under the same umbrella of creating a self. <clears throat> so back to the story. At a later time, Prajnatala came back and again asked Bodhitala, Bodhitala then, Bodhidharma later, what among all things is formless? Bodhitala said, non-origination is formless. Prajantala asked, what among all things is greatest? And Bodhitala said, the nature of reality is greatest. Those are the two lines brought up in this case. Non-origination is formless. Nature of reality is greatest. Nothing can surpass that. So what is there before thoughts arise? Before connotations are formed? Prior to the birth of the organism? Does non-origination disappear when something originates? When a person is born? Does the foreground cover the background? 
know, these, these are the questions we, we work with. Right? We try to open it up further and further and further. Constantly. Question. Not question the self. Question the appearance. Not question what we create. That I think we do without practice. We do well. But to truly question Commenting on this non-origination, Kazan said, You can understand this realm as inaccessible like a 10,000 fathom precipice, or as brightly illumination or illuminating all distinctions. You can think of all things as being nothing other than that, and that they remain just as they are, changeless, along with the self. But these are not at all non-arising. Already arising. Lots of arising. Therefore, they are not formless. Then he says, prior to the separation of heaven and earth, how can you distinguish holy and ordinary? In this realm, not a single thing can sprout, not a speck of dust can defile. It is therefore the greatest of the great, and it is said that the great is called inconceivable. It is also said that the inconceivable is called Dharma nature, true nature. Now when we chant again, when we chant now I return to oneness, we have to understand that what we are raising is the intention to return to the inconceivable. And the ungraspable. But if it's inconceivable, how do we do that? How do we know? I've arrived there. How can we figure out? How can we discern between not being there and being there. Okay, so it says, prior to the separation of heaven and earth, how can you distinguish? So before the thought of is or is not, before this thought comes up in the mind, before the appearance of duality, or before the appearance of duality shapes your view of the self. There, you're not a part. You've never been a part. So we separate in order to figure out a way to connect. But in reality, the separation is false and the connecting is false. We think we are separated and therefore we think we have to put it together. Of course, we're going to get frustrated because it doesn't work. So as long as we hold on to a notion of duality, we remain in duality. It's that which creates the duality that we have to look at. And trust that what we want to unite has never been apart. It's tough. It's tough not because it's complicated. It's just tough because it's radical.
And when we try to make sense of it all through thought and explain it through the use of words, we get stuck, obviously, because thoughts are one-dimensional and can only express a limited aspect of reality. You know, challenges we face in our lives don't have to be heavy and complicated or source of suffering. They become this way when we fail to recognize that what appears as separated is essentially not. There is the beginning of suffering. So to return to oneness is to not create a conceptual gap. It's not to do, it's actually to not do. It's not, I'm going to sit here and try to figure it out, figure out my way back home. Just sit. That's the instruction, just sit. Sit and observe. Look where the attention goes. It goes this way, bring it back. To what? Don't worry about it. Just bring it back to this. Over and over again. So yes, it, it is a challenge, obviously, because we do get caught up very quickly. We go very deeply into it, too. So one zazen period at a time, maybe one minute at a time. So then Prajnatara <coughs> proceeded to ask Bodhitara, what is it that all things are hung on? Or in other words, what is the source of the mess we experience? Bodhidharma said, all things are hung on the sense of self and other. All things are hung on the sense of duality. And finally, Prajnatara asked, what is the highest among all things? And Bodhidharma said, the actual nature is the highest. The inconceivable is called Dharma nature. My teacher used to say that the practice, the purpose of practice is not about, was not to homogenize all things into one. Which means to not reject the varied appearances. Not reject people's situations or any distinctions not reject our emotions, thoughts, not reject anything. Because on the level of the relative, it's all true. But on the level of the absolute, all distinctions are indistinguishable. What we see as two is not two, yet it doesn't mean we should not see it as two. We better not not see it as two, because if we get caught up in that, we will not be able to function. So while seeing appearances, realizing oneness, while feeling stuck, realizing not being stuck. And if we go further from there on the level of non-origination, what we call the relative and what we call the absolute are both inseparable and non-existent. Because what we call the relative is, appears on the level of the absolute. 
and what we call the absolute appears relatively. And again, it's not a play on words, it's just the way it is. So Prajnatala then waited again until the moment have, has ripened. And some time after this, the king died, and while everybody was mourning, Bodhidharma sat before the coffin in Samadhi for seven days. He went into deep state of meditation. That was his mourning. And when he got out of it, he went to Prajnatara and requested ordination as a monk. Seeing that the moment has arrived, Prajnatara agreed and ordained him. So following this, Prajnatara practiced with Bodhitara. They practiced together. Bodhitara studied, took the time to receive instructions. It says that the received complete instructions from Prajnatara on the subtleties of the practice. On hearing these teachings, Bodhitara realized supreme insight. And Prajnatara said to him, you have complete wisdom, you have completed uh, your practice and you understand all principles of the Dharma. Dharma means complete knowing. Thus I shall name you Bodhidharma. Having received that transmission, Bodhidharma knelt and asked, I've realized the Dharma. Now, where shall I go to do the work of the Buddhas? And Prajnatara said, You have realized the Dharma. Stay here in southern India for a while. Teach here. And 60 years after I die, you should travel to China and establish there a strong medicine to teach those of excellent potential. So he did that. Sixty years after Prajnatara died, he got on a boat, traveled for three years, and arrived at China, southern China. And that's where the meeting between uh, Emperor Wu and Bodhidharma happened. In this dialogue, Bodhidharma asked Prajnatara, will I be able to find those who can become a vessel for these teachings? Will there be trouble there for the next thousand years? And Prajnatara said, yes, there will be numberless people who will wake up in the land where you will teach. And there will be some troubles, so you should lay, lay low for a while. And he did that. He went to China, met with Emperor Wu, had the dialogue, the famous dialogue, crossed the Yangtze River, settled in the Shaolin Monastery, and sat staring at a wall for nine years. Which by itself, obviously, is a pointer to what we're practicing was deeply realized, yet went further, went deeper as a practitioner, not as a teacher. And after that, it is said that he passed on his skin, flesh, bones, and marrow to his four disciples, Daofu, Dayu, Kongji, and Huike. Huike was his main successor. And during these times, there were other teachers of different sects who tried to kill him. And he evaded their attempts six times. After the last attempt, he decided that his work is done. The time has come. So he sat in Zazen and died peacefully. So Bodhidharma is actually maybe a more vivid image in our practice as Zen practitioners, more so than Shakyamuni. 
And the differences, well, obviously there are differences between the way Buddhism was practiced 2,500 years ago and also other sects of Buddhism that are more connected to the way, to the original teachings, or at least in form. The main point of Bodhidharma's teaching is direct pointing. Direct means direct. Simplified, bare bones. And I think this is why sometimes people don't feel, don't see what Zen has to offer. It's very much non-frills kind of practice. Not many colors, high points. The heart of it is just keep your mouth shut, sit down, don't move. Don't move and look at what Bodhidharma is directly pointing. And the heart of it is taking personal responsibility to verify, to clarify. Which does take a lot of determination and trust that we can do it, that we have what it takes. Bodhidharma's teachings are known as a special transmission outside scriptures, not founded upon words and letters, by pointing directly to one's mind, it lets one see into one's own true nature and thus to attain Buddhahood. Simple. Simple. And from there, from this understanding, comes true humility. And if it's not actualized from there, then it's just another dead concept. You know, the dictionary to humility says, it is a low view of one's own importance, which is kind of pointing at it, but not quite it. The, the true understanding of humility flows out of an understanding of equanimity. So how can it be low? Low in relation to what? But we write dictionaries from a differentiating mind. So we can't even look at a dictionary for an answer. So we have to look within beyond words and letters. No high, no low. And it's not just, it's not more than just being authentic, genuine. And the one who is humble does not know she is humble. And as Dogen said, Buddhas do not know there are Buddhas. There's a story, a nice story about Rumi and a seeker, and the story portrays this very well. <clears throat> Once upon a time, a young man decided to leave his homeland and go to learn from the great teacher Rumi in Konya. After weeks of travel, he finally reached the outskirts of Konya and saw a gracious presence walking towards him. The young man knew in his heart that this is Rumi. So he dropped to his knees in prostration before his great teacher, who he has been seeking for a long time. But as he came up, as he stood up again, he saw that Rumi was actually prostrated in front of him in the dirt. Amazed and embarrassed, the young man again prostrated himself and again found Rumi prostrated towards him. And this happened over and over again until the young man finally said, why are you, my teacher, prostrating yourself in the dust before me, a mere seeker? Rumi said, If I did not show you my nothingness, 
What would I be useful for? That should be in the dictionary. Because this is a representation of what humility means. If I did not show to the world my nothingness, why am I here? What am I doing here? Because if I'm not doing that, I'm glorifying an illusion. Guaranteed. And that's what we need to do. To show nothingness. To not be, to not be ashamed to appear utterly naked in front of the world. And to know that this total giving is a medicine for a sick world. So how do you feel when you put your forehead on the ground? Look at that. Clarify. And bow. Bow deeply. Daily. Bow to give it all. Completely. And utterly. And show. Nothingness.